0: Hello, RareCast listeners. This is Danny Levine. RareCast will be on a hiatus until early January. In the meantime, we're bringing some of our favorite past episodes you may have missed. This week, we replay an interview with Pat Furlong, founding president and CEO of Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. This interview was conducted in April 2015, just ahead of the World Orphan Drug Congress. Even though we're on a break, we'd still love to hear from you and get your thoughts on RareCast. Hop me a note at Danny at Levine Media I'm Daniel Levine and this is Rare When a doctor delivered a devastating diagnosis to Pat Furlong for her two sons with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, she refused to sit by and just watch them slowly die. She marched off to Washington to corner her senator and the director of the National Institutes of Health, borrowed money to fund her sudden role as a patient advocate, and brought together academic researchers to get them thinking about how they could tackle the disease. We spoke to Furlong, founding president and CEO of Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, about her experiences, what patient advocates can do to raise awareness for their causes, and how they should think about best leveraging their investments. Pat, thanks for joining us.
1: Happy to join
0: you. You'll be speaking at the World Orphan Drug Congress, which kicks off April 22nd in Washington, D.C. You'll be talking to rare disease patient advocates about raising awareness and and raising funds. I'm hoping we can do that a bit today by discussing your own experience. You lost your two sons to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a a progressive muscle-wasting disease. They were first diagnosed in 1984, and and the doctor delivered a, a, a grim diagnosis for your sons. What were you told at the time?
1: So when my sons were diagnosed with Duchenne long ago, um, the, immediate, um, the immediate sort of prognosis of this particular physician to us is that your sons have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's a rare progressive um, disease where skeletal muscle is lost over a period of time, and it's 100% lethal. So in general, what you're going to see, he told me, is that these children at the time of diagnosis in his office we four and six years old, and he said gradually over the next 10 to 15 years, um, over the next five, they will lose their ability to, to walk. Over the next 10, they will lose their ability to breathe, and they will not survive their team. So that that was, it certainly makes your day um, different than it was supposed to be, right? So that was the diagnosis and the prognosis that he gave.
0: The environment was very different then for Duchenne patients when your sons were diagnosed. What was it like in terms of federal investment, scientific understanding, or industry interest in the disease?
1: Well, when my sons were diagnosed, we we didn't have a gene or a protein product at that moment. This was 1984. So there was no gene, there was no protein product, although there were guesses that they were closing in. Uh, And you probably already know that in 86, the gene was discovered. In 87, the protein product identified, or the gene was cloned. But in 1984, there was no gene, there was no protein product, and Probably within a week after my son's diagnosis, I flew to Washington to see my congressional representatives and said, "So, what are you doing in this space? Is what is Congress doing?" And I went to the NIH as well and saw over the next um, years a succession of directors of the NIH, uh, such, such as Har- Har- Harold Varmus um, uh, and uh, Bernadine Healy, um, who were leading the NIH, and basically asked them those questions about. So what are are you doing? What are you thinking about this space? How are you thinking about this space? And what's the investment? Without exception, I received that we aren't thinking about this space, that rare disease is not on the map, that at that time you might recall there was a war on cancer. And that was where the investment of the National Institute of Health would be focused. You
0: you say this rather casually, (laughs) that in a week of the diagnosis, you were meeting with the (laughs) director of the NIH. A little background uh, you, you were a nurse by training, but I take it they looked at you as if you were a housewife from Ohio. How did you end up meeting with the director of the NIH?
1: Well, so I think part of that is persistence, right? And part of that is not accepting the immediate—you'll um, have to talk to her assistant, you'll have to get a schedule, you'll have to do this. That was that was not part of my <laughs> that was not part of my plan. So I continued to call, and when that didn't work, I went to my congressional. Um, of the senator, and I can't even recall his name, in, in 1984, who represented me and said, I'm trying to get to the, the head of the NIH, and it doesn't appear to be resonating. So I then, as you might imagine, did get to the to the director of the NIH um, with a little bit of congressional help. Um, I also was referred to the Office of Rare Disease under the direction of Steve Croft. So I was, um, at that time, Abby Myers was working hard on the legislation called the and Drug Act and associated legislation to really um, incentivized people to look at rare disease. And um, I signed on to her effort, though obviously didn't sign on specifically in terms of supporting her, but that didn't have any role to play there in terms of I was trying to figure out where I was going, um, but certainly supported the legislation, met with the directors of NIH, and was appalled to find out that the resources were mainly directed other in other places other than uh, this neuromuscular disease.
0: You've used the term, the creative use of outrage. What do you mean by that?
1: So I think, I mean, you, when someone you love is diagnosed with a life-threatening, um, life-limiting, debilitating illness, you're outraged. First of all, because, you know, disease always comes as a surprise. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but, I, you know, I think if, even a, a smoker who smokes 25 years, if they're diagnosed with cancer, it's still unexpected, surprised, harmful, painful. And so, when my sons were diagnosed, we, we all have plans when we have children, and my plans were to watch them grow up. I'm, I am a nurse by training. My husband is a physician, and, and we had plans. You know, my sons wanted to be football players like their father. They wanted to follow his his experience at Notre Dame. So, we had these plans in our head um, about how life would look. And when you get a devastating diagnosis, it says, you, you don't have to look any further. You're not even going to have your children around. You're You're outraged at no one really I mean who's the person to be outraged about or to right you you're just outraged and in pain and, and suffering and and wishing that you as a parent could do something that might change the predicted outcome and so you can be outraged and you can be angry right and you can demonstrate that angry anger in a variety of ways you can be angry at home you can be angry to life you can be Angry, and I worried that if that was, if all I could do was be angry and demonstrate that to every person that I came across, that a that wouldn't be productive, and b that might really undermine the, the love of the family that we all had together, and c it didn't help relationships because I in my career I've never seen anger work out very well with a parent or a patient that I took as care of. So, creative outrage is going to going to the NIH. Creative outrage is meeting with the director of the NIH and saying, you know, it doesn't appear that you're focused on this disease or even have a significant investment. I would like to understand why and, and what circumstances might change that. This meeting with your senator or your House member and saying, this is important to me and I'm one of your constituents. And so the things that are important to me, if you want my vote, need to be important to you as well. And so together, how can we think this, about this differently? Um, in in this world now, where Duchenne is in the pip- with a robust pipeline, it's about meeting with the FDA and saying you have a hard job. You know, you have to assess whether or not these drugs have a- make a meaningful difference. So I want you to understand what it's like to live with this disease. I want you to understand what it feels like day to day to come home to a child who's changing and losing strength. And I want you to weigh that caregiver preference, for instance, when we did benefit risk. I want to quantify it for you so that you can weigh that as you see these um, new drug applications cross your desk. So creative outrage is how do you maybe it's maybe it's how do you make friends um, and how do you create relationships and partnerships that recognize this urgent need as well as get them on board with wanting to help them. And I haven't seen true anger and belligerence works productively. So maybe I'm wrong in that, but that's how I feel. Creative outrage is how do you bring someone on board to your way of thinking to understand the unmet need and to try to address the with you.
0: One of the things you did after your sons were diagnosed was, was go to your local bank and borrow $100,000. As I, I understand it, you, you signed papers with your without your husband's knowledge, but used his signature. What, what were you thinking and what were you hoping to do?
1: Well, to be honest, um, I, I, in my older age, I've um, not become more conservative, but I, I think through things before I do them. I thought, first of all, we were going to have to have money, and I was going to have to have money, because in general, in our relationship, if we wanted to buy a car, for instance, that would cost money, but that was a discussion, you know, we want to buy a car, is it a Chevrolet, or is it a Cadillac, usually with a Chevrolet, but, um, you know, and we discussed how much that would be and how much it would impact. The same was when our daughters went to college. Big, big decisions about large houses, cars, uh, college were always just stuck together. And I knew, if I went to my husband and said I'm going to borrow $100,000 because I want to cure the boy, right, he's in medicine, so it's not like he wasn't well versed, and it's not like he hadn't read all of the publications and all of the data that we had at the moment, which was not very much. So, I don't think he would, in his in his knowledge and expertise, agreed that $100,000, or any investment at that time, was going to fix this. He also was looking at a future of a home that would have had to be modified or we would have to move in order to accommodate the loss of function. So so that day when I borrowed $100,000, I didn't want to get into the argument of where is the greatest need or where will it be soon in the future. I wanted to get $100,000 that gave me some degree of ability to understand what the the landscape looked like, to interact with uh, people in the field, to be able to maybe uh, provide some support for them to investigate a promising area of research, to do something rather than feel so powerless. In in
0: 1994, you launched your organization, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. You were Also very quick to reach out to the academic community. What was the reception when you first did that?
1: Well, it was difficult because, you know, at that time, um, advocacy was just in its beginnings with the Orphan Drug Act, but it is true that people who had rare diseases would reach out to someone who was interested in the space, and there were investments, small investments in academic labs on different diseases, right, to include Duchenne, and so... um, Initially, when I initially I went around to try to understand what the landscape looked like. And I I will honestly say to you, I went into clinics uh, and met with doctors and told them that I was a physician with patients with Duchenne because then, back then, you couldn't make an appointment at a clinic unless you were going as a patient, right? So I wasn't about to drag my sons around to 10 clinics to get what I knew was already the answer. I wanted to know what they were thinking and how they were thinking about the disease. So that's... One of the things that I did. The other thing is I went into laboratories, and same thing. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't about the buy a laboratory, but I wanted to know from their perspective what what should be done here. If if you've got to write the rules, what do you think is important, and what's the state of the art? What do we know, and what don't we know, and what do we need to learn about this disease in order to be able to make a difference? So they, you know, they I went in again as a a, either a physician or a young postdoc looking for a job to try. I didn't want to be patted on the head or patronized. Like, Mrs. Furlong, you know nothing's going to happen. I already heard that story. I, I knew it. The story was um, well described by a physician who diagnosed my son. So I didn't need it again. I needed to know what's happening here. What do we know? What do we need to know? How well is this disease characterized? What do we know about the patient? Are they the same? Is every patient the same? They go off their feet at eight years old or nine years old. They die at 15. Is that what happens to every single patient or are there outliers? Where's the money? Who's giving it to you? Um, what do you do with that money? How do you use it? How do you think about it? What? what how If you have to change the disease? What would you do to do that? So, um, and then I went and uh, went to the University of Pittsburgh, met Eric Hoffman, and uh, we did a feasibility study on care because I, this is my field of expertise, care, right? That's where I come from. And I said, you know, so, one of the questions that I asked on diagnosis of my son was, <clears throat> for instance, my boys are flat-footed. So, is that part and parcel of this disease? Are all boys with Duchenne flat-footed? And if so, um, or if not, in our case, this flat-footedness, would it help if we put arches under their feet? Would that help their accommodation for the weakness, or would that hinder the accommodation they've already made? That was one of my questions, right? So one of the physicians that I talked to about that said, who cares if they're going off their feet? And I said to him, that isn't the question. The question is today, if I put arches under their feet, would that make them walk better, feel more comfortable, have less burden, or would that alter something that they've already accommodated for? Well, the answer is we don't know, right? Still don't know. So but those are the simple kinds of questions in terms of care that I felt should be answered. In addition to the fact that you know, way back then, how, how do we know will non invasive ventilation help them? Can we assist their breathing when it becomes difficult? Can we help with it? So, I did a feasibility study, spent fifty thousand dollars at the University of Pittsburgh with Henry Wessel to do a feasibility study to say what what does care look like? So, if we're going to be consistent about something, what are we telling patients in terms of consistent care? What's best practice? Well, the feasibility study was there was no best practice back then, and so as we lobbied Congress and the MD Care Act that was built into that that law, that we had to have standards of care. So it's that. And as a parent, that's what I was asking. Practical questions for how can I make today better? Is there something I can do to give them more years, more time with me, with our family? Is there something I can do to make them more comfortable, less have less burden of those muscles that are already struggling? And what can I do to invest in this field to... Drive it to make it better, to make people think differently, to incentivize companies to to try to get there. So those are the questions I asked. I ran around on that hundred thousand dollars. Well, some of them I didn't ask them because the industry wasn't even thinking about rare disease in 1984. So my questions evolved over time. But that's what I wanted to know: what does the field look like? Right? Because when you're at least in my case, when when I was when my boys were diagnosed, my first thought was, you know, how hard can this be? Let's just fix it, right? And then when the gene in the protein product, where the gene was cloned in the protein product I identified, I thought, well, how hard can it be? Well, I can tell you all these years later, it's pretty hard. There are a lot of complexities here, um, and and I would suspect most diseases fall into this range. So there are things we can do. And so I began. So then I started by gathering, the, gathering those investigators together um, in a meeting and said, so... Collectively, what do you need? What, would happen, what is one baby step we could take? And they collectively agreed that having a center of excellence in Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy with a critical mass of people, investigators who are working in the space, would really set a good stage for progress. Well, let me ask exactly you about that, that. meeting.
0: You, you were trying to do this, and I think it was Hoffman who challenged you by asking you what incentive researchers would have to come. And at that point, there was a, an issue of Time Magazine, yeah, With, uh, and French
1: Anderson was on the front of that Time magazine. French Anderson and Francis Collins did the first gene therapy experiment um, on the SCID or some Severe Combined Immune Deficiency Disease. And so they did that first experiment, and um, in doing, they were on the front of Time magazine. So I, I was in Eric's office, and I pointed to, to that and said, oh, they're coming. And he said, no, they're not. I said, no, 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 they're so, um, How
0: did you make that happen? I take it it was a bold-faced lie at the
1: time you said it. It was a bold-faced lie. It was a bold-faced lie. Um, but I figured I'd rather say I'm sorry I lied than say, okay, it'll never happen. So I flew out to USC. I sat in front of Dr. Um, uh, French Anderson's office, met with his assistant, and said to her very honestly, I just lied about you. I need your help. I need you to come to a meeting and say that, that you know something about this. Because it's the only way. And he came to that first meeting. It was held in Canada. And, um, it was held in Canada because we had been working in the United States with, um, a scientist on mild last transfer, which is me seeking out magic. And then um, he wasn't very accommodating to, he wasn't enough to just give him money, which I learned, I learned the hard way that he wasn't a solid scientist. I learned it from Eric and lots of others, but I also learned it on my own. So we held it in Canada, um, in London, Ontario, Canada. I flew out to USC, begged French Anderson to come. uh, Through his assistant, he agreed. He walked up the center of the aisle of the the little room that we were in. We had, I think, about 30 of the lead investigators there, and he said, I'm going to cure this disease in 18 months. I thought they were all going to have a heart attack and walk out of the room, and they didn't. They started having discussions about what it would take. One of them was creating a center of excellence. And with that, we took a business plan. We had a business plan. Uh,
0: one of the other things you've done is really, uh, early on, bring other patients or the parents of other patients together with these researchers. What impact did that have?
1: I think it has a great deal of impact, and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, if, if I was the only patient to talk to these people, that's one voice, right, and one experience. So all parents deserve to have their voice heard and deserve to be validated. That would be the first thing. The second thing is is we learn, right? We learn about the scientific process. We learn about, because when you get a diagnosis, you kind of want a one, you know, you want to bet on a horse, and the horse wins, and then you go back to the life you expected. But we know that's not how it works. So if that's not how it works, then we need to learn how it works. And so I think this meeting with, um, Leads in the field, investigators and, and clinicians, academics and clinicians, and bringing the patients to them in a in a way that's not under the sort of clinical care realm that is in an informal learning environment is important both for both parties. One is the patients understand the complexity. The patients also or the caregivers can ask the hard questions without and get expect an answer, and they do in clinic as well. But we can answer ask corrective questions. We can learn. They can learn. They can learn what it's like to live with this disease. What our priorities are may be different or the same as theirs. We, as patients, learn about the complexities and about what. If an experiment fails, why it fails. We learn about. We learn about drug development. We learn about how they assess targets, how they validate targets, what mouse models important, why the age matters, why how you test that model well, how you analyze the tissue. So we learn along the way that it's not a matter of giving aspirin to a mouse and the mouse looks better and saying, well, there you go. And then we learn that mice and people are very different. So, And what, what we can learn from the mouse and what we need to learn from the person or what we can learn from the dog. So we, I think this is a mutual learning environment where we all win.
0: You alluded to the uh, MD-Care Act earlier, but you played a critical role in getting this legislation passed in 2001. It, it was since updated in, in 2014. What did that do to change the landscape?
1: The, the MD-Care Act galvanized the field. So next to the gene and the protein, the cloning of the gene and the protein product, the MD-Care Act was the next most important step in this community. Before that, as I mentioned, NIH was spending minimal amounts, $5 million and under on the muscular dystrophy, and in particular, Duchenne. So when we went and uh, Roger Wicker, now Senator Roger Wicker, then House Member Roger Wicker um, was, was and is one of the champions, late Senator Wilson is one of the champions of this legislation. When we went to their office and carved out a bill, he said, what are the most important things? And we wrote down Centers of Excellence, Standards of Care, and a plan, a research plan. that became to whoever writes the legislative uh, language, they wrote that as legislative language. It was called the MD Care Act. It was introduced into the House and Senate on February 14, 2001, and signed into law in 2001 December. So, what over the over the years that legislation has done is an NIH, Department of Defense, and CDC investment of 500 million dollars. 500 million dollars galvanizes the field. It changed. It changed from the parents who were able to know that their voice counted in Congress. It changed from the academics to have opportunities to explore their areas of research and to collectively work together in terms of the centers, uh, the well-known centers. It also, I think, to some degree, helped eliminate the therapeutic nihilism of that was existed certainly when my sons were diagnosed, no hope and no help. And it also um, incentivized uh, industry
0: it's it's been a long journey and you've built a, a very successful advocacy and education group but it, it's been a learning process what would you say patient advocates need to do to be successful at raising awareness
1: well i think you know it's tough when you're diagnosed with a disease it's hard because you just you want it different you want it, you want to do the plans that you have made that's what you want right i think for patient advocates i if they let me and say, "How hard can it be?" I, I think we have to get to the point where it's pretty hard, and we have to characterize the disease. We have to know what we have to ask questions about. What we what do we know, and what don't we know? We also have to ask about the patients. What do they look like? Are they the same? Are they different? What are their differences? So I think that to systematically look at a disease, to roll your sleeves up and say this is hard and admit that, but we as patients in the patient community can do something. And that something we'll have, uh, we'll see research, will change a landscape, we'll um, mobilize a community, create attention to a disease. That's how you change a landscape. And then you learn along the way. You learn along the way. And I think we all have to acknowledge there's a great deal to learn, but we can learn it together and we can seek ways together to be able to accelerate um, this research and, and certainly drive therapy.
0: Uh, you, you also learned early on that bake sales weren't going to carry you. What what have you learned about fundraising, and, and what scale do advocates need to think about? How can they best target their dollars?
1: Well, I mean, I think as so in any of these, you can you can make money, right? And you you do fundraising, grassroots fundraising, in all sorts of ways that are successful. I think what we all have to look at is how do you leverage the dollars? Because if we think the current the current um, estimate of of trying to drive a there to, to deliver a drug. It depends on who you talk to. But, it's, you know, it's hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars. So I think if we begin to invest in a strategic way about, and even in the non-sexy things, right, says, how do you characterize the disease? Sometimes that's not very sexy. Care, that doesn't feel very sexy either. But if you can save your population or, or, or if you're doing trials and care is highly variable, then you have a confounding variable. So you need to invest in making sure care care is consistent, correct? And and so that might mean making a network of sites. That might mean three sites, depending on the size of the disease, that are doing consistent delivering consistent care. That might need biomarkers to understand what causes variability. So they sexy. The sexy thing is, I invested with ABC company, and they're going to do whatever. But along the way, for their trial to be successful, there are non sexy things that need to be addressed and considered really important if you're going to get to the next step. So I think it's about working with others. It's about leveraging money. It's about making the case. It's about really creating an environment that there's interest and and exploration of your disease.
0: Pat Furlong, founding president and CEO of Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy and one of the keynote speakers at this year's World Orphan Drug Congress USA in Washington, D.C., starting April 22nd. Pat, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you.